In light of the social unrest in our country, we're going to take a break from our First Peter sermon series and address the gospel and race in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." We are experiencing the greatest amount of social and civil unrest that our country has seen since the 1960s, when Martin Luther King gave his speech to a crowd of civil rights marchers around the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. The racial tension has been sparked most recently by the death of George Floyd, African-American man, in the hands of police officers in Minneapolis. But that has been just the tipping point that has escalated what we have seen. We can track back even most recently to Ahmaud Arbery being killed by a son and his father who was a former police officer in Georgia. And Breonna Taylor, who was shot down in her home, killed in her home in the middle of the night in Louisville, Kentucky, by police officers. All this has raised and reminded us as a country of the history of racism and racial tension that exists in our nation. And everyone's looking for answers. Everyone's looking for answers. If, if you look at social media or podcasts or articles, there are more opinions than you could imagine on what the real problem is and on what the solution is. But this racism is not something new in our country, and it's not something new in our world. We go back to April of 1994 to July of 1994, when the Hutu ethnic majority in the African nation of Rwanda murdered some 800,000 Tutsi ethnic minorities using machetes and clubs, killing up to 10,000 people a day. 
1941 to 1945. Hitler's Germany systematically murdered some six million Jews. That was approximately two-thirds of the Jewish population in Europe. Of course, we could track back through history in the centuries to see more examples, but we track it all the way back to the first century. Here in Ephesians 2, where racism was alive and well, and racial tension existed between Jew and Gentile. And it raises a question as we read of the Apostle Paul addressing this, what does the gospel say about racism? What does the gospel say about racism? It answers the why question, the what question, and the how question. Why does racism exist? What is the solution to racism? And how should you respond? So let's start with the first question. Why does racism exist? Now, before I answer the why, let me address the racial, the racial tension that existed here in the first century between Jew and Gentile. The word hostility appears two times in this passage. The word means hatred. There was a deep hatred between Jew and Gentile. Why? Well, look at verses 11 to 12 to describe even more of just the racial tension. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You had alienation, you had hostility, you even had name calling. The Gentiles were called, quote, the uncircumcision. It was just indicative of the contempt and the hatred that the Jews had for them. The question is why? Why was there this hatred? And then of course that broadens out to why does racism exist, which is hatred between people of different races. I want you to see that racism is uh, an individual problem and it's a communal, systemic problem. Now let's start with the individual problem. W what is it? Well, look at the end of verse 15, this, verse 14 and 15. It says, Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, or he has put an end to the hatred by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So it says he put an end to the hatred by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now that begs the question, is the law bad then? Of course, Jesus and Paul himself say, no, the law is good. The law that Paul is talking about here is the Mosaic law. It was the law given to God's people. And God gave the law to his people to teach them how to love God and how to love those around them. The law was given them to be a light to the nations. It was for them to love the Gentiles and love the other nations and reach them with God's love. But what had happened is, is that God's people began to believe that they received the law because they were better than the nations. They began to use God's law to elevate themselves over those that weren't like them, the non-Jews, the Gentiles. What we see here is 
the condition of the human heart, divorced from God, separated from God, alienated from God, we are left searching for our worth and our identity and our significance, that we are left having to establish it ourselves once we are separated from God. And one of the ways that we establish our worth is to elevate ourselves over others or that we gain value as a human being by feeling superior. And one of the ways that we can elevate ourselves over others is by skin color or by race. But there's other examples. Let me give you some other examples so you see the root of the problem, that this isn't just a circumstantial thing with race. What are some of the other ways that we elevate ourselves over others? Well, mothers who give birth naturally will look at mothers who don't give birth naturally, who take an epidural and say, wow, they just couldn't quite tough it out. And mothers who have an epidural when they give birth, look at those that gave birth naturally and say, wow, too bad they had to, to experience all that pain and they're not so enlightened that Jesus is making all things new and that an epidural is part of that. Or parents who homeschool, look at parents who send their kids to public school and say they're not educating them in a Christian worldview. Or parents that educate their kids in a public school, look at homeschool parents and say they're not raising their kids to learn how to live as light in a dark world. Or Democrats look at Republicans and speak down of them, and Republicans look at Democrats and speak down of them. Presbyterians look at Pentecostals and say they're out of control, they're not using their minds, and Pentecostals look at Presbyterians and say they're dead. We use race, we use parenting, we use education, we use religion, we use politics to elevate ourselves over others because we're deeply insecure. And functionally separated from God, we seek to establish our worth. Now that's the individual heart problem. That is what causes racism as we know it. But that individual heart problem then becomes or leads to a communal problem or a systemic problem. Look at verses 19 to 21. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone was the first stone that was placed on the foundation to build a building. And if you were to lay stones along a line to build a wall and each stone was referenced to the previous stone that was laid, then a, then a wall could get crooked pretty quickly. But if each successive stone that's laid is referenced back to the cornerstone, then you get a straight wall. You get a straight line. The church makes pretty crooked lines when it loses Jesus Christ as the reference point, as the cornerstone. When culture becomes the cornerstone or the reference point, then sin 
gets redefined or sin gets overlooked or sin gets ignored. And this is case in point with the slavery in the American South. There were Bible-believing churches. There were Bible-believing men and women. Churches, even churches that were the root of our denomination that endorsed slavery and that didn't speak against it because they were operating according to the cultural norm and not according to Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And so that cultural norm began to develop this communal problem, which became a systemic problem in the American South. So why does racism exist? It's, it's an individual problem that starts inside the human heart, but then that gives birth to a communal problem, which becomes a systemic problem. What does the gospel say about racism? So it first answers the why question. Why does it exist? Second, it answers the what question. What is the solution to racism? Look at verse 13. But now, that means that God intervenes. God intervenes. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And then verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God. The solution to racism does not begin with reconciliation between people of different color. That's the goal. But the solution to racism begins with reconciliation between people and God. Because lack of reconciliation between people and God is what contributes to racism, which is our need to establish our worth and our significance by elevating ourselves over others. And race is one way to do that. And so racism is tackled at the core by reconciliation to God. Now, that doesn't mean that the attempts to reconcile horizontally between people of different color outside the church and the world doesn't mean that that's wrong. It just means that attempts that are only horizontal, that don't address vertical reconciliation with God, aren't lasting. Let me give you an example of this. A school bus driver was taking kids to school one day, and he was fed up with the arguing, he was fed up with the fighting, the name-calling, the cruelty on the bus between the black kids and the white kids. So he stood up, stopped the bus, he stood up, he turned around, he said, everyone be quiet. You are no longer black and you're no longer white. You're green people. And it actually worked for a few minutes. Kids stopped arguing, they stopped fighting, they stopped being cruel to each other, 
And then a couple minutes later, a kid stood up and he said, all right, all you dark green people on the right side of the bus and all you light green people on the left side of the bus. The point is, you can't end the hatred. You and I can't end the hatred, end the hostility. But Jesus has. Jesus has. Verse 14, Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus killed the hostility by taking hostility on himself. And the hostility that he felt and that he received and that he endured from the people that marched him to the cross and hung him on the cross paled in comparison to the wrath that he experienced, the righteous wrath from God being poured out on the sin of humanity, on the person of Jesus because he bore the sin of humanity. God poured out his wrath on Jesus and Jesus bore on himself in his body the sin of racism and every other sin so that we can be reconciled to God so that now seeing what Christ has done for us, reconciled to God, one with God, we receive our worth from him, our significance from him which removes our need to elevate ourselves over others through the variety of things, but including race. So the solution to racism is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where he tore down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between black and white, between all races. And once he reconciles you to God, he then gives you a new identity. And that's the second piece to the solution to racism. Look at verse 15. That Jesus might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. One new man or one new humanity. One scholar says it well. The first century world was divided into Jews and Gentiles. Paul makes a threefold division, Jews, Greeks, or Gentiles, and the church of God. Christians were to speak of themselves as a third race or new race. Now, that doesn't mean that you lose your cultural distinction or your uniqueness as an African-American or an Asian or a Hispanic or a Caucasian, or a Middle Eastern. It just means that's no longer your primary identity. That you're Christian first, black second, or Christian first, white second, or Christian first, Asian second. And this goes beyond race. You're a Christian first, you're an American second. You're a Christian first, you're a Democrat or Republican or Independent second. You're a Christian first, you're a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Baptist or a non-denominationalist second. 
doesn't mean that you cease to be black or white or Asian or Hispanic. It just means that those categories are no longer categories by which you build your identity because when those categories are primary or ultimate, that's what leads to division. That's what leads to hostility. What does the gospel say about racism? It answers the why question. Why does racism exist? It answers the what question. What is the solution to racism? But there's a third question it answers, and that's how should you respond? How do you respond to the racial tension we see in our country in this day? Now, I'm going I'm to explain a profound truth that's then going to lead to two very relevant applications of how we should respond. Let me start with the profound truth that drives how you should respond. And that truth is found in verse 15, and it's the phrase, one new man. One new man. Now, what's interesting here is Paul doesn't write that God in Christ makes you new people, that he makes you a bunch of new individuals, plural. No, he says one new man, singular. And he's speaking here of the church, of the community of God's people. What we see in the scriptures, here in this phrase, but throughout the scriptures, is this teaching on communal solidarity. And it is absolutely foreign to our Western culture that puts such an emphasis on individualism. So let me just point a couple places in the story of the Bible where we see this communal solidarity. The first is in Joshua 7. After Joshua leads uh, his people, God's people, into the promised land, into Jericho, they take Jericho, and it says there was a man by the name of Achan. And Achan took some of the silver, some of the gold, some of the valuables that he found in Jericho, and he stuffed them under his tent. Now God had told Israel, that when they, when they found the gold and the silver and the valuables, they were supposed to bring it and put it into a, a communal treasury. So Achan didn't do this. He, he hid. He hid it. He disobeyed. And what's fascinating is that the whole nation of Israel is punished because of Achan's sin. And by the end of the chapter, Achan's entire family is punished for Achan's sin. What we see there is, is, is communal solidarity. I'll give you another example. In, in Daniel chapter nine, Daniel prays this amazing, beautiful prayer of confession where he begins confessing the sins of his ancestors. In other words, Israel and generations past and their sins, and as he's confessing the sins of his ancestors, he uses the we language. He's confessing sins that he never personally or individually committed. But because of what we understand in the Bible about communal solidarity, Daniel was using the we, that he was connected to his ancestors of the past and the sins they committed he owned and confessed and repented and turned from. And then there's Romans 5, which says that we are held accountable 
are responsible for Adam's sin. In the garden, in the beginning. A sin that we didn't personally commit, a sin that we didn't individually commit, but that we're held responsible, that Adam's sin is imputed to us. Now you say, that's just not fair. How am I held responsible for something I didn't do? Well, you gotta be consistent because if that's unfair, then it's unfair that we are imputed with the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus when we didn't live the perfect life that earned that. What we see here is communal solidarity in the scriptures, that we're one with the church in the past and we're one with the church today. Now, what does that mean? It's a profound truth. It's a truth that swims upstream in our individualism in the West. But what does that mean? I'm gonna give you two very relevant applications of how we should respond to the racial tension that we see in our country. Number one, flowing out of our oneness with the church in the past, you might say, I'm not a racist, nor did I own slaves in the American South. My hands are clean. It doesn't involve me. And though that's a common response, it's an unbiblical response. It's an unbiblical response that reveals how we are tied to a cultural norm, this cultural norm of individualism in our society. Because the reality is, if you're in Christ, you have brothers and sisters in Christ who did own slaves, who, who did commit the sin by thought, actions, and deeds of racism. And so the call is to corporate or communal confession and repentance. Communal confession and repentance. As Daniel does in Daniel chapter nine, we confess the sins of our ancestors. We confess those sins recognizing that they have consequences today that we're seeing. Now, let me also make the point in Romans 5, while Paul does say that we inherit Adam's sin, a sin that we didn't personally commit, he also goes on to say that we, we actually do sin. And I would say, as it applies to racism, that if we are, uh, if we don't believe that the sin of racism exists to some degree in our hearts, then we are lacking some self-awareness. The call is to communal confession and repentance as a church in the past that we are connected to, communal solidarity, but then there's also the individual, personal confession that we offer up for the sin of racism in our heart. Let me give you a second application on how should you respond. And this flows out of not our communal solidarity necessarily with the church in the past, but this flows out of our communal solidarity with the church today. And that is that the proper response to what we've seen and what has happened is to weep and to mourn with our African-American brothers and sisters. Romans 12, 15 says, weep with those who weep. 
if you're white and you're a part of the majority culture, then you will never and you can never understand what it feels like to be a minority in a majority culture. But I will tell you that our black brothers and sisters are experiencing extreme pain, extreme sadness right now in our country. Let me, let me try to give you a glimpse of the pain that they're feeling, that, that maybe you can connect to. Have you ever been driving down the road or driving down the highway and a police officer, a patrol car, gets in behind you and follows you for a little bit? Uh, what do you feel when that happens? If you're anything like me, you, you get a little nervous, a little anxious, maybe even a little fearful, right? Hands go to 10 and two on the steering wheel, seatbelt check, speedometer, am I going the speed limit? Am I weaving back and forth or am I keeping it straight? And all you can think is, oh Lord, please don't let those lights go on in the police car. Please don't let me get pulled over. Please don't let me get a ticket. Now I want you to take that feeling and I want you to multiply that by 40, 50, 60 fold for the experience of an African-American in our current setting. And add to it, not just the fear of getting a ticket, but the fear of being hurt or treated unjustly. We're called to enter in. We're called to weep with those who weep. Compassion is stepping into the pain of another. And God calls us to weep and mourn with our black brothers and sisters. If you have a, a black friend and you haven't already done so, talk to them, reach out, ask them how they're doing more than anything. Just listen, just listen and mourn and grieve with them and pray with them. In his book, When a Nation Forgets God, Erwin Lutzer retells one Christian's story of living in Hitler's Germany during the Holocaust. Listen to what this Christian man wrote. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church and each Sunday we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when he heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. 
We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. If we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians yet did nothing to intervene. Something has been done about racism. Jesus Christ has done something about it. He has destroyed, he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility because he took the hostility upon himself. Jesus has done something about it. And he's also done something about your guilt. I don't share that story so that you walk away feeling guilty. Jesus has also done something about your guilt. He's forgiven you. You're forgiven. This isn't a call to guilt. What it is, is a call from Jesus to his church to take the peace that he has secured, to take the peace that has put an end to the dividing wall of hostility between races that Jesus has secured, to take that peace in obedience to him and usher it into a world that is broken and split and torn apart by the sin of racism. Racism, is, it is not a social issue. It is not a political issue. It is a gospel issue. It is an issue for the church of Jesus Christ, and something has been done about it by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he simply calls us to follow him, to usher that peace in. So what is the call? What should you do? Confess. Repent. Pray. Pray for those that are in places of power, that do have power and authority to do things that you may not be able to do. Pray for the African-American community. Pray for healing, for comfort. Pray for reconciliation to God, which is the foundation of a solution to racism. Weep, mourn, and reach out. In the name of Jesus Christ, let's pray. Oh, Father, We mourn, we weep, we stand with those families that have lost loved ones in the midst of this racial tension in our land. Father, we confess our apathy. 
we confess it. And we turn to you, Jesus, and ask that you would forgive us for not caring. Father, would we as a church stand in communal solidarity, not just with the African-American community, but with every minority community, that all races would stand together as one in Jesus Christ, recognizing that the only reason that we can do that in a lasting and permanent way for eternity is because, Jesus, you broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Father, we pray for healing. We pray that you would thwart evil, thwart the violence, the cities in our country, that you would bring justice and that your gospel would go forth and bring healing to our land. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.